This morning we're continuing our series of meditations during Lent on the epistle of uh, Peter, the first epistle. And today we're going to be looking at two more settings in which we are called upon to be uh, in submission, if you will, to the uh, institutions that have been established in the world. Last Sunday, you may recall that uh, Vince, uh, toward the end of his passage, which was a a lengthy passage, uh, brought us to the place of our call to be in submission to uh, all of those in authority. And the text we'll be looking at this morning uh, takes us away from the higher powers to uh, settings that most of us encounter in, in one way or another in daily life. Peter writes this letter as a shepherd. He, is, uh, he writes as a pastor to congregations. He writes in awareness of the challenges, uh, the reality in which they are placed. Uh, part of that reality, of course, was the uh, persecution. Uh, persecution Uh, as a a result specifically of their commitment to Christ. And sometimes these persecutions are uh, related to other wider factors in the world. There was a time when uh, Christians were viewed as just a subset of of, of Judaism. So that, for example, when there was a a time when the, uh, the Jews were expelled from Rome, and a lot of Christians uh, were kicked out at the same time. But uh, in 1 Peter, he's writing to churches that are in Roman colonies in Asia Minor. Uh, What happens in Rome tends to filter out into the colonies, and this is written at a time uh, probably most uh, closely correlated in history with the Neronian persecutions. So he acknowledges the reality of their persecution. And he writes to counsel them as to how to navigate this. Is there some special strategy? Is there some extraordinary form of Christianity that needs to be adopted uh, in order for the church to face times of persecution? But this is, this is a shepherding function that the leaders of God's people have to consider. What, are, what, are the, what is the nature of the times that we are living in? What is the appropriate Christian response? Thankfully... Thankfully, in a a way, the response, the direction, the counsel that Peter gives is uh, is extremely simple, extremely straightforward. This morning we're going to be thinking about standing firm in righteous living. So if you're facing persecution, that uh, that will tempt you, that will pose a threat to your firmness in faith, uh, that Persecution presents an opportunity, a situation in which wavering, in which compromising, in which uh, reneging on our confession uh, becomes an option that some consider. And so Peter, at the end of his letter, says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The text that we're going to be looking at today uh, in in, uh, two different settings uh, encourage us to stand firm in righteousness. So the, the first text is from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 18. And we're going to, the first uh, reading is to the 25th verse, which is the part addressed to household slaves. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, 
not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So one group, uh, one uh, element in the church, but in society that is vulnerable during a time of persecution are household slaves. There were, um, the estimates are that uh, probably a third of the population uh, in the Roman Empire at the time of of Christ, at the time of the apostles, were slaves. One one third of the population in Rome and its colonies, one third of the people were slaves. And these, of of course, are uh, in households. And and the word that's used here uh, in, in addressing slaves is not the, the more common word doulos, which is the general word for bond slave, someone who belongs to someone else, but it's oiketes, which means a slave who works in the house. Um, early churches were established as household churches for the most part, but uh, the slaves that are being addressed, particularly in this letter, are those who find themselves uh, in, in the context of a household uh, and they are called upon to be subject to their masters or owners, if you will. And the text goes on. If I can, there it buzzed. Now it should work. There. They said. Uh, you know, they said Gerald Ford wasn't able to walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm learning to talk and use one of these. So the, the scripture text continues. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." just want to call your attention to that 25th verse, remembering that we're being called to stand firm in righteous living or in righteousness. At the end of his exhortation to the household slaves, uh, he says, you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned as shepherd and overseer of your souls. And in this, he, uh, he moves from the picture of the lamb He's been quoting from Isaiah 53 up to this point about uh, Christ being the one who was wounded for us. We are like sheep going astray. In verse 25, he, he uh, flips the imagery, if you will, and reminds us that uh, we have a shepherd, we have a guardian for our souls. And in uh, right before that, he says that... Uh, He died for us so that we might live unto righteousness. We might live unto righteousness. Clearly, righteousness being uh, Peter's understanding of what, uh, or part anyway, of what it means for a slave in this setting to be in submission to his owner. Righteousness in this setting is uh, 
submitting to this human institution. And Christ died for us. Christ gave us an example that this sort of submission is consistent with God's righteousness. And in fact, we are called to this, and it is pleasing to God. Well, the next, uh, next group of people that are addressed are the wives. And again, if, if you think about persecution, if you think about opposition, if you think about being vulnerable, uh, perhaps two of the most vulnerable groups of people in, the ancient, uh, in ancient Rome were household slaves who were someone else's property who could be beaten uh, without recrimination upon the owner. And then, and then the wives, who are vulnerable in, in another dimension, another, another way, and, and we'll note that in just a moment. But he says, in the same way, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation." Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Wives have always been vulnerable. Uh, even, um, even in our society, wives are vulnerable. So that when Peter speaks, uh, encourages husbands to live with their wives according to uh, literally, according to knowledge, in other words, uh, they are to live with their wives according to knowledge, uh, recognizing that they are the weaker partner. Now, what does that mean? It just means the husband is to be aware that uh, physically he has the power to intimidate his wife, but he is not to live with his wife on the basis of his uh, physical capacity to abuse or uh, force her to do things. Instead, he's to live with her on the basis of understanding her and giving her honor as a co-heir of the grace of life. The grace that we are to stand firm in is ultimately, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. The husband and wife together are co-heirs of the grace of life. So just as uh, Christians are to honor the emperor, to honor the governor, husbands are to honor their wives. The, um, when he says the weaker partner, he does not mean that, they, uh, that uh, the wives aren't as tough as the men by any stretch, that the wives have a lower pain threshold. Probably the opposite is true, I guess. But it's just, just ask yourselves, how many in the greater Cleveland area, uh, how many shelters are there for battered husbands? There may be, you know, nothing would surprise me these days, but I'm, I'm guessing there are uh, probably not any, but there are, I'm sure there are multiple, multiple shelters for battered wives. You just know that's the case. 
in a, in a world where there are authority structures and where, uh, where sin enters into those structures. Then he wraps up uh, this particular section. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. Since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who, le- who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Notice verse 12. He's quoting, he's quoting from Psalm 34. He says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. So if you ask, what, what is the Christian strategy when you are in a situation where you are vulnerable to some form of, of, of persecution, some form of oppression, If you're a household slave and you've become a Christian and your master is not a Christian, uh, as the household slave, there may be things where you you find yourself uh, pushing back or at least asking, uh, can I no longer participate in those things? Uh, Or you may just have a master who is uh, harsh by nature and the fact that you've become a Christian just stirs up that... uh, nastiness. So in, your, in that situation, what strategy should you adopt? Or if you're a, a, a wife with a, an unchristian, a non-Christian uh, husband, and he, he might be really upset that you've adopted this new religion. What's your strategy in dealing with that? Is there some extraordinary path to follow? As I said, the The answer that Peter gives is surprisingly simple. Do what is right. Lean lean into righteousness. So that, uh, in a way, the the most effective protection for the Christian facing persecution is to live the Christian life. The best strategy when you are facing the prospect of suffering unjustly is to look to the example of Christ. Peter says this, uh, we we are called to this. Christ has given us an example for this. And this is, uh, as he says to to the slaves, he says, "This uh, this is credit before God. This is pleasing to God. If, uh, if suffering unjustly, you bear it patiently. So if you're a, uh, and of course today, you know, thank, thank the Lord, we don't have slavery. Slavery was actually, uh, mitig- the harshness of slavery was mitigating in, uh, even in the, the days of the apostles. There was a, a movement in society away from that. In Egypt, um, if, uh, if your slave was killed, or if you killed your slave, there would be a coroner's inquest. Uh, so there is uh, not all, not all uh, householders who owned slaves were universally cruel. More, 
there was a direction towards uh, mitigating the, the severity of the institution, but still it's there. And he, he says, effectively, if you have a, a master who is uh, harsh, work hard anyway. Put in a full day's work anyway. And uh, don't talk back. Be respectful. And, and then trust God. Trust God to take care of you. Now, of course, he's giving general advice. You know, if your master is threatening to kill you, maybe that's pretext. That might be a good reason to just try to run away if you could. Uh, you might, you know. But Peter is offering, he is offering counsel to God's flock as to, to how we should respond, knowing that God cares for us. One of the, uh, one of the great things about these um, passages is that wherever there are exhortations, there are almost twice as many encouragements surrounding the love of God and the faithfulness of God. So that the, uh, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ear is open to their cry. Uh, remember that when he, when he, that's to, that's to the, at the end there of the passage, in his uh, general encouragement, in his uh, word to the household slaves, he, he says, uh, by Christ's wounds you were healed. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your lives. So if your life is threatened, remember that there is a shepherd who is watching over you, sees what's going on with you, and cares about you. He's your guardian. He will, he will not forget you. Likewise, the, the strategy for the wives strategy for the wives is uh, to display a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. That's a, that's a point of connection between the household slaves and the wives, not that they are on the same level, uh, but simply that this pleases God. If you're a slave and you, su- and you endure uh, injustice patiently, this pleases God. If you're a wife and you adorn yourself with a gentle and quiet spirit, this is of great worth in God's sight. And so go ahead and and live without fearing intimidation. Well, there are, um, just just to point out a couple of connections in these passages, because I've mentioned in other sermons, this is, this is such a beautifully written letter, and sometimes we don't pick up on that. But uh, he, he develops his advice to the slaves around Isaiah chapter 53. He anticipates Isaiah chapter three, uh, 53 in chapter 1, verse 19, when he reminds us that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So he anticipates the lamb who's slain for us. Comforting and encouraging slaves, he quotes Isaiah 53. By by his knowledge, my righteous one will make many righteous. And so he says to the slaves, you you were saved, you you were delivered from your sins by the lamb so that you might live for righteousness. And of course, then he, he flips the image from Christ the sacrificial lamb to, to Christ the shepherd. The, 
The second half, the counsel that's given in the section uh, with the wives and the husbands, and then the encouragement to the, the whole congregation, is based on Psalm 34, which he anticipates in chapter 2, verse 3, where he, he says, Like newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted, if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And of course, uh, Psalm 34 is a wisdom psalm. And it says, come my children, uh, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Do you want to live a long life and experience many good days? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from uh, deceit. But in that, in that psalm, he, there is a, a line earlier that goes, taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those, happy are those who put their hope in him. So if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, and then he, when he wraps up this section, he quotes from Psalm 34, which speaks of the Lord's care for the righteous over and over and over again, uh, Peter just quotes that, that one stretch, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But if you go read the psalm in its entirety, there are uh, three or four more references to God's care for the righteous. So as, as, we, live, uh, as we live in an uncertain world, and as the world and our culture in some ways seems more uh, ominous, uh, threatening to us, we can ask ourselves, where it, does, does this require something different? Is there a unique strategy that will carry the day that, um, that maybe we ought to be looking for? And what we learned from First Peter is that the strategy for facing hard times, the strategy for facing opposition as Christians, is to be a Christian. Strategy for being a Christian in the face of persecution is to be a Christian, to lean deeper into the righteousness that God has called us to live. Now, I think all of it, there is a level at which uh, even those of us who deeply embrace the authority of Scripture. There's something about these passages that just rub us the wrong way. <laughs> There's something about the notion of submission to authorities, uh, submitting ourselves to uh, authority structures that just it doesn't resonate with us. And you think, well, pastor, that's interesting, but that really can't be the case. It really can't be the case that uh, submitting patiently to uh, injustice is, is a, a path for the Christian to walk. That, now, that doesn't mean Christians shouldn't care about injustice and that Christians shouldn't seek to redress injustice in the world, but when it comes to us and how we respond in those situations, we are called to, to follow the example of Christ. Who could, as he's, you know, who could have called down legions of angels to deliver him from the injustice which he faced, but he, for the, the glory of his Father, uh, submitted himself to the will of the Father. There's something about this that rubs us the wrong way, 
And I would, I would suggest that part of what we are up against, why it, why it rubs us the wrong way, why it, it sounds unsettling to us, is that our, our culture is deeply shaped by the, um, the outlook known as individualism. In, in which the, the ultimate value in life is my freedom to direct my life in the way that seems best to me. And if I'm placed in the context of authority structures where I'm, I have a part to play, where, uh, where, my, uh, where the course of my life is directed in some way by my responsibility within the framework that God has placed me, that just doesn't sit well with me. Um, that's, that's, one reason, that's one reason I think we're seeing the, uh, the unraveling of our, our own society it is because individualism has reached its end and it is not a happy end. One of, one of the most memorable uh, sights, uh, I think, from this past year in the political upheaval were the uh, the militia the militiamen on the capital uh, the at, on the capital steps in the state of Michigan, not the I mean the the events at our nation's capital were troubling enough. But what I remember most vividly about the the paramilitary people with their AR rifles standing on this, the the uh, steps of the Michigan State House in uh, in Lansing. Some of them had signs on, and, and they were there because they didn't want to wear masks, among other things. But they felt that the Michigan's governor had overstepped her authority and, and robbed them of their liberty by issuing a mask mandate. And some of them were holding signs that said, my body, my choice. And of course, they stole them. I don't know, not literally, but they borrowed that, let's say, because that, that is the slogan of a group on the other end of the political spectrum, uh, those who, who want to advocate for abortion uh, on demand, my body, my choice. And as far removed as these people are in their hopes and dreams, they hold something in common. They hold, what they hold in common is that the most basic uh, consideration is that I will decide my destiny. I will navigate my way through life, and it is the responsibility of government to keep other people from interfering with my choices, whether my choice is to walk around with an AR or whether my choice is to have an abortion. It's the same driving uh, outlook. It is the same principle of deep individualism, which, is sent, which rests on the premise that I am obligated at the end of the day to no one but myself. And so if, if slaves are told to be obedient to their masters, we think, how could anyone say that? Who could live uh, with a life that's at someone else's beck and call? Wives be subject to your husband. Oh, you know, how abominably patriarchal is that? What person should have to order their lives around someone else's needs or desires. And of course, it's in the church. Next, next Sunday, we're going to have an installation and ordination, and we're going, to ask, we're going to ask Wendy, Joe, and Blaine 
Do you submit to your fellow officers in the Lord? You know, that's... And, and we're asking them before Almighty God, do you submit? Are you, are you willing to enter into a relationship of mutual responsibility with your other deacons and with the rest of the church? So that, so that while, you know, we, we could, you know, you could find a, a minister who could take the edge off of all of this, uh, slaves and masters and wives and husbands, but at the end of the day, we, we are still deeply embedded in our individualism. And the fact that this is here should take us beyond whether I agree about uh, a, a particular way that we might work these issues out. It takes us beyond that to the root of the matter. Why does this trouble us? And it's because we have a conviction about the nature of, the, of what it means to be human. We have a conviction about uh, how to live and to uh, fulfill the, uh, realize uh, your desires and your aspirations. And it's about you. And it's about your choices. Christianity places us in the grace of God, and God has, God has arranged things in the context of authority structures, uh, broken as they are by sin, nonetheless, because God has established them, we respect them. God has put us in, in the fellowship of believers, and it is in a relationship of mutual accountability and mutual responsibility that we experience the grace of God. Uh, we'll get there next, uh, in a couple of weeks, but later on in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. We're to stand firm in the grace of God. How do we stand firm in the grace of God? God has, put, God has parceled out his grace, if you will, to you and you and you and you and you. And what you have, that person needs it. And, that's, and the only way they can get it is if you, if you and you are faithful to each other, no matter what happens. And that stands over against the consumer model of the church, which, which is grounded in individualism. And it points us to how it is that we endure in the grace of God. I'll close with a, just a comment from person who I've, I've found deep, deeply helpful. But as a shepherd, I bring this to your attention because it's my responsibility as a shepherd to talk about how we are located, where we are situated, what's at stake, and what will help. Leslie Newbegin, uh, 50 years in India as a missionary, Protestant missionary, came back to his native Britain, uh, settled down and realized that he was in a, a a much harder mission field than he was in India. Because at least in India, they were relatively open. In Britain, nobody wanted to talk about it. Britain was really hard. But Newbegin writes, the deepest root of the malaise of Western culture is an individualism which denies the fundamental reality of our human nature as given by God. Namely, that we grow into true humanity only in relationships of faithfulness and responsibility toward one another. The local congregation is called to be, and by the grace of God, often is such a community of mutual responsibility. If it looks darker on the horizon, if you think it's uh, 
if you think we need a special strategy to face the growing darkness, the strategy is pretty simple. Be a Christian. Be the people of God. Love one another. Be committed to one another. Stand there in God's grace and don't move away from it. Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd. We thank you that you have given us a a simple word, not simple to do, but simple enough to hear, simple enough to decipher. And we thank you that it is your grace and grace alone that enables us to live this way and to live with this hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.